You are listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. This episode is a highlight clip from this week's full episode. To listen in on the complete conversation, see the show notes for the link to the complete show. You can help us out by leaving us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate every bit of your support. I'm Morgan McKittrick, your producer, and this is Decidedly. It's interesting because all of the training that you're talking about going through around sort of forming up a a mechanism to essentially, I would think, create rules that are governing future behavior, really taking out the uncertainty of, of the decision-making process. Yeah. In fact, sort of trying to remove the decision-making process. But it would seem, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong, it would seem that once you're deployed, those situations are so highly charged, so different, so in some cases chaotic, that it, it would be very difficult to actually create rules around decision making. And so that's where my interest lies is, is how do you form up a group that is as successful as the, as the SEALs to, to make this, to actually try and remove decision making and then have people who have to make these, these life and death literally decisions all the time. Yeah. So it's, uh, again, it's, it's the training, 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 and you're, you're preparing for every possible contingency, you know, every possible outcome, but you develop what are called standard operating procedures. And the good thing about the SEAL teams is they, they allow everyone to be a leader to everyone to think, you know, like I'll give you an example during, you know, the, the SWAT type training or the CQB when, when you're going through a building and, um, you know, you've got a, a stack of guys, 10, 15, 20 people, they all know what to do when they encounter whatever the problem is. You know that's coming up and they some guys have to pull off into a room and that may may have been the the top leader in the platoon well the get next guy already knows and has to stand up and um and knows those standard operating procedures um you know and i think that that's a huge part of it you know is to is to minimize all of those those possibilities but uh you know and the seal teams are great because they kind of have a you don't have to be sick to get better we're always trying to question, always trying, you know, we're, we're learning stuff. We're also, also trying to question, okay, why are we doing this? Is this outdated? Is there new, new stuff that, that plays into this? Um, so I, I think, you know, again, it, it tactically with decision-making, there's a lot of things. I mean, with, with, with leadership, if guys are talking, asking you about career advice or, um, uh, you know, how to, how to lead somebody, so to speak, or what should they do in a situation? Well, the good thing is, is, you know, you, you allow these people to be able to speak, you know, and to kind of come to these conclusions and, and kind of check them, you know, it's, um, you know, and, and also to take other people's you know, ideas into consideration, you know, beforehand, you know, obviously when you get into a combat situation, it's kind of, you're on, um, yeah. kind of fire and forget, you know, and, uh, Seals are really good. One, I'll tell you one thing that you so saying, or I think you're asking me about what separates some guys. I think the ability to compartmentalize and disassociate um, in chunk. So like with uh, you know like learning new skills like a guitar, you don't just sit down and play the entire song. You have to chunk sure. pieces of that and different things. Well, in in seal training in buds, it sucks so bad. It's like oh my god, can I just get? I just need to get through this run. I this run is yeah. the only thing I need to worry about. And then after that, you know the same thing. Well, we do that also in combat. You know, we've, we've got 
every little we've got these points of where we're going and we know these phase lines and we know that we just need to do our job we know what to do in that little moment we don't think of the overwhelming aspect of what's going on around us in combat it's just i know what to do right now and what's right in front of me and once i get to that next point i'll be there um so i, I think that 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 chunk yeah know, and i think that goes into into broadly speaking the decision making process that sticks with you for for life i would imagine whether it's resiliency or being able to compartmentalize, the I think where Sean, where you were going, it sound, seems like there are obviously you can't just put a bunch, a group of six guys out there in the middle of the desert somewhere and expect them to make the right decision at every turn, right? You've got to prepare and train with these standard operating procedures, and make sure that they know tactically exactly what to do. But then the gray area has to also be trained, right? That resiliency has to be, that's a decision. There's a decision to quit in training just like there is in, in combat or in anything else in life that's hard. There's a, you have a decision to quit. And, and the SEALs, it seems like, have done a better job than any organization that I can think of of training that out of people or finding people that never had it in the first place. Yep. But how much of that is conscious? How much of that resiliency is are you guys consciously training outside of the you know official training times and officially at buds and how much of that compartmentalization that way of thinking how much of that are you guys consciously focusing on maybe when you're not wearing the uniform well before you know i, I don't think in the seal teams there has been things some mental training that we have done um you know, some visualization, some some type of you know breath work and meditation type stuff, and that's that's been more recent. And so that's kind of a that's if I have a passion, it's for how to develop resilience and uh, you know keep on with mental toughness. And I don't think it's it was a conscious thing ever for me, other than the, before my third time at Buds. But once I got into the SEAL teams, you know, wars happened. I mean, I was right after right before September 11th, and. I did multiple combat deployments. I had the loss of 18 close friends that were like roommates and groomsmen in the SEAL teams, you know, that uh, that died either in combat training or you know five of them by suicide. And that'll, you know, your your level of for me, my my level of resilience I thought was pretty good, but traumatic brain injury. You know, SEALs were exposed to so many explosives that they haven't they didn't know this until recently that repetitive blasts cause traumatic brain injuries it's it's not like in football where somebody gets hit and they get one part of their brain you know bruised right from the coup counter coup effect yeah and that that part is affected whatever part of the region of the brain that is with explosives right even small ones not you know like the the breaching that we do to, to knock down doors so to speak i've been exposed to about four or five hundred explosive blasts in my life and they didn't find out until a lot of these suicide, a lot of seals were killing themselves and so they did autopsies on their brains and they you know their family members donated their brains and they found out that they had this thing called their called this tearing through every region of the brain that causes this thing called astroglial scarring and it's so after about 10 years i, I remember it so it took me 10 years a buddy a couple buddies of mine made it through seal training so they were 10 years ahead of me but i remember going man they just seem kind of hollow you know, and I didn't know what it was. I was just like, oh, they're just, you know, turning into kind of jerks and quiet. But um, it wasn't until the, the end of my career, all these explosive blasts, right, uh, as well as the loss. And, you know, I've seen some other, some bad stuff. I worked in the medical field and all that stuff. 
you know, I have seals have to remind themselves every once in a while that they're human because sometimes they think that our physiology, our physiology is completely different than everybody else's. Um, you know, the resilience is, is, I think my resilience was higher, but that's a lot to ask. And so towards, I remember, God, this is probably about 2014. Uh, I remember telling a guy I worked with, I was like, man, I feel like a shell of a man right now. I don't know what it is. Got, I was having sleep issues and I got put on hormones and, you know, thyroid and testosterone yeah. and a bunch of other stuff. And I remember when I was getting ready to retire, and this was a few years, I retired about two and a half years ago. So it was probably three and a half years ago. I was doing all my medical appointments and get ready for my VA stuff and disability you know, exams and all that stuff. And traumatic brain injury, most, most SEALs will tell you, yeah, yeah, traumatic brain injury, that's cool, explosives. But when you start talking about PTSD, they're like, nah, that's mental, that's mental illness. That's mental weakness. That's kind of, it has been, and probably most guys, when they're in, would kind of tell you that. And um, I had a decision to make, you know, I did. And, and uh, coming into the kind of the, the plot of the, the show, so to speak, I, uh, I remember I was doing all of these, these different things for balance. I was doing memory, I was going through speech ther therapists for, for memory techniques, and my eyes would bounce as I'd walk. Um, so I was doing this vestibular therapy and I'd lose balance, uh, when I was walking in crowded situations. And I remember when I, I was still in the Navy, but I was applying for my VA appointments, um, for traumatic brain injury. The psychologist asked me, she was like, why aren't you applying for PTSD? And I was like, I don't know. I don't, do I, I don't think I have it. And she's like, oh, you absolutely have it. And that was a big decision for me at that point. It's kind of a, that was a you know, big catalyst, but I was like, okay, I got to address this. And so when I went back, you know, and talked to my wife and my daughter. Um, I found out that they'd been walking on eggshells around me for the past four or five years. You know, I, I reached out to some friends that have known me for a long time that I interacted with regularly. I, one of my one of my close friends used to have my brothers living with me at the time, but my uh, my friend John used to have to t get a hold of my brother to get a hold of me. And that's just one example. So I was kind of starting to isolate myself. And when I realized I was having this generational impact on my daughter, you know, that my behaviors were affecting her that I'm like, okay, I decided I, I've got to do something about this. And I did what everything I could in the military. I was, you know, they put me on antidepressants and stimulants and went to counseling and it didn't do a thing. Um, I think it screwed me up more than anything. And so the kind you kind of hear guys talking about stuff, you know, through the, through the rumor mills. And I found out about, uh, the first thing I tried was what this is called, uh, it's commonly referred to as transcranial magnetic stimulations where they put a magnet on your head and they, they create these new neural pathways and you do it over about six weeks, about 30 minutes a day. And it, and it helped, you know, it did, it, it might help my sleep and my mood, but it kind of wore off after a couple months. And I can get to why I think that is that way here in a minute, but, um, it wasn't until I, I was trying stuff. I started to try to meditate and I was, um, you know, that was a big thing. I was reading everything I could. I was proactively engaged in my own, my own help, so to speak. And it wasn't until, I heard about a treatment down in Mexico that I was a little skeptical of, but I started doing the research and it's overwhelmingly supportive. And I don't know if you guys have ever heard of psychedelic assisted therapy saying, or I'd be surprised if you have it because it seems like everybody under 30 knows exactly what I'm talking about. Um, yeah. I'm a, a little bit familiar. Is it, this is like microdosing on psilocybin no. or, or no? no okay. No, definitely not. So the, it, it, I mean, it, so what this is, is again, went through an entire screening process, went through medical cardio, you know, cardiology tests and, and labs and everything else and was screened by a psychologist and went down to Mexico and it's, it is super, super high doses. Um, 
like, you know, Sean, when you and I grew up, kids were probably taking like a gram or two of mushrooms if they ever did that type of stuff. You know, I did, never did anything. Right. But, so this is like, it would be like five grams. It, but, but it wasn't mushrooms. It was these two drugs. One is called Ibogaine, and it's considered the godfather of psychedelics. It's an old African um, drug from this tribe out there, the Igwitis, and they use it for kind of a, a ritual to, as they grow up. But um, the interesting thing about about ibogaine is they found out that it, it really has a, it has a 90, 90% success rate of carrying opiate and heroin addiction. That's huge. Okay. Well, they of found out. Of curing it. Of curing it. Of being physio- curing the addiction? physiologically free. Ted doing blood tests and whatever else they do for that. The, literally, there's zero, there's zero withdrawal. You, you do this and it's about a 12 hours of feels like you're getting hit with a baseball bat. It's, it's, it's pretty hardcore and uh, it scares off a lot of seals because it's, it, it, you know, it's the, the medicine is one thing. Okay. And that's a huge thing, but it's the, the insights you gain. Thanks for making the great decision to listen in to this week's episode highlight. If you want more of what you just heard, see the show notes for the full episode. As always, for the latest decision-making tips, find us on decidedlypodcast.com or on Instagram at decidedlypodcast. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter from the link in the show notes. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review as well. We read all of your comments, so if you learned some decision-making tips today, let us know. Until next time, this is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers who are not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their own opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.